Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. As an SAPA in therapy, one year, multiple sessions per week, yay, 12-step, yay, one year, three to four times a week. Yes, thank you. Diagnosed with many mental disorders, uh, chronic post-traumatic stress, OCD, anxiety, et cetera. I still experience a lot of cravings, urges, and have a convincing self-talk to act out or relapse. Is there something I can do to help with that? Um, and any of these tips that uh, those disorders and addictions, that's, you, and I'm sorry you're struggling. I know, I mean, people can continue to have, you know, create, you know, from alcohol, like they, you know, the urge left me quickly, which I'm grateful for, but I know people can really struggle with that. Um, so Dr. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Because well, doing a I lot of good just, stuff. I would be careful here because it feels like there's a little bit of conflation, putting these hmm. things together, my mental health and my acting out cravings, urges. We all, I mean, those of us who get sober, we have cravings, we have urges, and we don't have to have emotional or mental. Now they can drive compulsive thinking, but I wouldn't automatically assume. I mean, if the rest of your life is reasonably stable, if you're not counting ceiling tiles, you know, if you're not so anxious, you can't get out of bed. I mean, if you're reasonably functional in other areas, then probably what you're experiencing is more to do with the change in your behavior. Mm. So I would, I think, I think for a lot of folks, it's like, oh, I have anxiety, so I'm going to have slips. So I'm going to, you know, struggle in this way. And I, I just make sure it's not an excuse with all due respect. Um, my answer to the question is very simple. Um, connection, 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 connection. Um, you, and it's perfect because this person said, I have to have a convincing self-talk. Don't bother. Pick up the phone, you know, because I can self-talk myself right into an affair. You know, but if I have another, this is why we do 12-step meetings in part. I have someone to call and say, I'm thinking about doing this. It's interesting because when I used to sponsor people, and I've sponsored a fair number of people over the years, um, they call me and they would call me and say, oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I know I shouldn't be doing it. But, and the first question I have for them is, how are you going to feel after? Because they're just thinking about what it's going to like with relapse thinking. They're just thinking about what all the excitement that's going to be. They're not on the other side where it's like, oh, do I have an STD and I'm incredibly ashamed and I'm three hours late for my kids. And, you know, so I would ask you to put that question um, on a piece of paper and keep it with you is how I'm going to feel later. But without accountability, without relationships that are healing, relationships you can rely on. I mean, look, when we act out, we're looking for connection. It may not be the best connection or the right connection, but we're looking for some kind of connection. And I think for addicts to begin to turn to healthy people for their connection and make use of those relationships, that's a lot better than self-talk. Um, self-talk's great, but connecting with other people, better. Well, and, you know, so hopefully you're talking to your sponsor and peer support, but you've been around the 12 steps for a year. Hopefully you're sponsoring people too. They're, like the 12 step groups are, I mean, it's so challenging for people to step up and be a sponsor. So, you know, like what a better, but what better way to stop the cravings than work with somebody else? You know, that is, you know, that's so service uh, work is so critical to recovery work as well. Yeah, and I just want to double up on that. And maybe this isn't right thinking, but after many years, I'd go to a meeting. And if I felt like acting out, I would hear that person who just walked in the door and what they were going through and what their struggle was. And I thought, 
you know, I don't want to be in that position again. And I feel badly for them and I could even help them, but I don't want to be them. I don't want to be in that position. And so it's real motivation, not that I want someone else to do badly, but to remind me of where I was. Even when I'm working at Seek Integrity, I'm listening to the guys it's like, oh, right. Sorry, guys, I'm going to see you tomorrow. But it's kind of like, oh, right. Um, that's what happened to me. And I could easily end up back there. So. And that's valid. Yeah, I mean, but but we can shift and the more connections we have, the more the less likely that is to happen. So, okay, next question. How should a, oh, how should, uh, or how much should a betrayed spouse be involved in his recovery plan? I keep being told to focus on myself and let him do his own thing, but I feel like he will never willingly choose to do more unless pushed at first. You want to start that one? I mean, I have some answers, Tammy, but I'm sure you have thoughts on your mind. Well, I do have a lot of thoughts on it, but he, I mean, it, what I hear again is someone who is not really stepping into the recovery space. If, and I don't know what the reasons are, but um, I hate hearing that a betrayed partner's focus has to feel like it's on the addict. Like you're not, I'm saying he and she. Not you're babysitter, not, parent, not police right. officer. Right. You're, yes, you're not his parent. You're not his police officer. You're not any of those things, you know, and at some point, what, what's a healthy boundary for you? you? You know, I think having a, this is what I need to see for my safety. So I need to see you doing X amount of 12 step meetings. I need whatever it is and have the plan, have the discussion. And then how he chooses to step into that space. To me, that's more, um, uh, you know, his thing that said, I get calls all the time from betrayed partners and they'll say, I know he should be calling. And I'm like, thank God you're calling because he's probably not going to pick up the phone. So thank God that I hear that you care, that you want to have information so that you can help with this. So, so part of it is kind of where is he at, you know, in that, but I do think it's okay for you to set a healthy boundary of, you know, I'm not your sponsor. I'm not your therapist. I'm not your police officer. I'm not your parent. You know, I'm your partner. And if you want to be in a relationship with me, here's what I'm looking for. And to see you moving towards you, they won't be able to do it right away, but this is what I'm looking for. And how do we get from where we are now to that point, it's going to take work on his, his behalf. So hopefully that's, a you know, that's a lot. I want to add one thing, which is, um, I think spouses have every right to know what is in my recovery plan, what my sobriety is. You need to know if I've done any acting out or anything like that. It's really essential that I tell you. Now, if I look at someone on the street and I think they're attractive and then I keep going, I really, that's what my recovery plan is. I, you would never feel safe if I, every time I looked at someone, I told you. But the serious piece is where I really did something that is going to endanger our relationship, I have to tell you. But, um, I was thinking, Tammy, that this is, um, yes, you need to focus yourself and let him do his own thing, but what is his thing? Um, what would you, you know, I want, this is what I'm comfortable with, I would say. I'm comfortable with you going to meetings a week. I'm comfortable with you getting a sponsor. I'm comfortable with you taking a piece of paper and putting it on the refrigerator and writing all the days of the week down and showing me everything you're going to do for your recovery each day. And I am not comfortable with being the one who's pushing you into recovery. In other words, I would tell him this. You know, I would say, look, this is not my job. I don't want to be here. What you're doing is you're really testing our relationship and you are testing whether or not we're going to stay together. And if you're not motivated in this area and this arena to do your own work, my pushing you isn't going to help. 
Um, and besides, and Tammy would probably say this too, if he push, if you push him, it's your fault. Oh, she's always nagging me. Oh, she's making this difficult. Why won't she let me do my own program? Don't push. Say, this is what I need. This is what I want. And then he gets to decide whether he's going to do it or not and have a backup plan. By the way, just to say to everybody, uh, just as a matter of point, um, don't threaten to leave unless you're going to leave. If you tell me, well, if you do that one more time, you leave, I'm, you know, I'm going to leave. And then I do it again and you don't leave. Well, then I know who's really got the power because you say things, but you don't do them. So I'm not suggesting that you don't say that if that's something you feel, but I don't say it, don't make threats unless you intend to carry out. Because when you don't, I learn a lesson, which is, oh, I can do whatever I want. She's not going to do anything or he's not going to do anything. So just be careful when you threaten. And I understand threatening, believe me, that it's something you're really willing to carry out. And I think it's okay to say, I really, you know, I, I want us to be able to, you know, get through this difficult time, you know, but I don't, I'm, you know, I, I, the load is not mine to carry, you know, I'm going to set healthy boundaries and boundaries are for your safety. And, and it's also expectations. Kids that don't have any boundaries when they grow up, they don't know where the limits are, you know? So, so if we set healthy boundaries and we, believe them and we hold to them then everybody knows what the rules are so to speak and it's not to be punitive it's just you know you know we have a you know when you're driving down the road there's lanes you know i need to stay in this lane so that i'm not you know ending up in the ditch there's a reason you know so so it's just to help guide the process but it also takes some of the anxiety off of you because it's not like oh i have to go like i have to go check his phone i have to go check and see you know wait has he gone to the meeting did he i mean like no you know be here read a book it's yeah good stuff so and again you need support too so i'll say that one more time because it may be very hard to tolerate that this person you love is not doing what you asked them to do, what would make you feel safe. You need other people to turn to and say, I cannot believe that this is going on after all he or she has done. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it's shame reducing and there may be other thoughts. You know, Tammy and I are good, but but we are pretty good. But, but if you got six or eight people in that group, they're all good and they're all gonna give you advice and you'll get a little pinch. One of the things I hear from spouses and I find it upsetting is, I don't wanna be like those people. I don't wanna go into one of those meetings. All of their spouses sound like they're losers. And, you know, I hate to say this to you, but uh, this is your situation. It's not different than any of theirs. And to avoid it means really to avoid the reality of what you're living through. You know, if I had cancer and I didn't want to go to the cancer support group, it doesn't mean the cancer is going to go away. But I will feel more peace, more comfort, more direction if I show up for that group. And, And, you know, I cannot encourage your spouses enough to take care of yourselves. Next question. I'm the betrayed spouse. We had full disclosure two months ago, and I'd like my essay husband to answer a few further questions about <laughs> his formal disclosure issues. Nothing too detailed, but he gets defensive and angry. How do we progress in healing in our relationship if he's not willing to be transparent? Well, I'm going to uh, throw something out here just for the heck of it, and I may be wrong. When do you ask those questions? In what circumstances do you ask those questions? And I'm not trying to say there's any way your responsibility, you get to ask whatever you want, and then he'll tell you or won't. But I think sometimes, um, and with all due respect, spouses are so hurt and angry that it, you know, we get presents all day long, we have questions all day long. Well, I just thought about this. Did you do this? And, you know, here I am, you know, trying to get some work done, or did you do this? You know, um, Tammy and I often talk about taking a time every evening. 
where you're going to sit down and talk about this. And that way you're not in, it's not in the middle of the day. You're not going to get the I'm busy thing. We have put this time aside to talk about it. And quite honestly, I say to you spouses, and I really mean this, write your questions down during the day. Keep, you know, use your phone, whatever it takes. I'm worried about this. Did this happen? Did that happen? Because the temptation would be to run to the person and say, did you do this? Didn't you do this? Um, that's not going to make you feel better. And by the way, I will say to all of your spouses, and this is universally true, there is a thought that I hear, which is, if I just know the answer to this, then X, Y, Z. And the reality is, once you ask a question, there's going to be another, and another, and another, and another. And I can actually explain that. I don't think, and this is my belief, I don't think that you spouses are looking for reasons to leave. I think you're looking for reasons to stay and you ask questions and go through everything to see if it's possibly safe enough for you to continue. And, you know, if you wanted to leave, you could just leave. So, um, yes, we have to answer your questions. Yes, we should be transparent as much as, uh, as much, how do I say as much as with the things that belong to you, not necessarily what someone said at a 12 step meeting, someone else, you know, but you might want to make the time. Now, if he's not willing I'm going to toss that one to Tammy. What if he's not willing to put that time aside and meet with her? Oh, that would be a huge problem for the relationship. So, but, you know, but let's go with, he, you know, you guys have done a formal therapeutic disclosure. You know, I'm wondering if, you know, are these questions that should be asked with the therapist? I'm also wondering really, and I say this to partners all the time. Um, can you tell I talk to a lot of people, but, but it's like, what are you looking for, you know, with the question? Like, like, I think it's fair to look at, at what it is. And the, some, there's some questions. I had somebody the other day that was saying, you know, I know I shouldn't ask, you know, whatever. And, and I said, you can ask whatever you want. Is it going to serve what you're looking for? You know, like, is that question the helpful one? You know, if, if this is what I'm looking for, is that question going to help it? And a lot of times, no. And, and the why questions, like, addicts don't know why so to me the better question is how here's where we are and how do we move forward without and it's not to negate ain't you know, like you, you deserve financial or not financial i keep saying financial disclosure because there's use I've the had, money for free to send it i know i've had too many people had some major financial issues with anyway so um so, but you deserve a formal disclosure that is therapeutic, that is well done, not a do-it-yourself, you know, but you've, you've had the formal disclosure. And I agree with Dr. Rob, there's going to be more questions that keep coming up. Suffice it to say, it was bad. Hopefully, you're seeing the progress that he's doing to move it forward. So, so it was bad. If he's doing things that are moving forward, how can you um, lean into that? How can you move forward with that? You know, because continuing to keep focusing on the, I mean, I'm not, again, going, oh, he gets to whitewash the past, but it's like, if all the focus keeps going back to this, you know, does that detract from you guys being able to move forward? And I'm not, I don't know what the answer is for you, but I, you know, I'm inviting you to think about what am I really looking for? And does this serve us moving forward, you know, in a healthy way, you know, uh, you know, then ask, but I would agree, do it in a contained space, either with your therapist or in the 20 minute session that you have, that's the time to talk about stuff, you know, so defense doesn't happen so much. Add some quick things, which is, uh -huh. uh, and to all your spouses, don't ask specific sexual details. 
don't ask how big this thing was or how we did that or what he or she had or, you know, you can we can say, you know, I was seeing sex workers on a regular basis and I was having oral sex and I was paying this much for it. Yes. But, um, you know, what else went on? Did this person take their clothes off? What, what did they you need to know the basics? We had intercourse. You know, we were, but the reason, and there really is a reason, is that I know that you guys feel like, well, I want to know everything that happened. It, it is absolutely true, and Tam will back this up, that if you know the real sexual details, you'll never forget it. And try to be sexual and loving with someone. Talk about PTSD. It will always, always come up in your head. Oh, she really wants someone that has this and has that. Or he really wants, and I'm not that person. And, and then you start to picture them while you're having sex or whatever um, with someone else. And then you don't want to have sex anymore. So um, ask everything that you want to ask. But we, and we, I just want to, we discourage the sexual details. And that's why we use words like penis and breasts and because we don't want the guys to get triggered, the ladies, and we don't want you guys to have those issues keep you from the bigger stuff that you need to look at. Um, something else that person said. Uh, no, let's move on, Tim. Okay. I am a male addict in recovery for just under one year. I have learned so much in the past year through all my recovery work, which is a full six days a week and one day for dedicated family time and have definitely made visible outward progress with myself and my partner. Do you have any advice for dealing with severe triggering and trauma response from my partner experiences outside the support acronym and validation of things of that nature? So uh, I'm a little confused. This person is asking for advice for their own for the trauma for the partners triggers for the trauma. partner yes right. yeah, so i wrote a book for the partner. Mm -hmm. i wrote a book for you it's called out of the doghouse a relationship saving guide for men caught cheating and as i i will say you know very often is that i have met you know literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men who've cheated some of them in an addictive way some of them not and i have to tell you that out of those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men i have never met a man and i mean never who understood how to make peace with the woman he had betrayed. You know, we're all about, it's been three months, you know, aren't you over it yet? And let me give you some candy and take you on vacation. Or you know that piece of jewelry you've been wanting? Or let me take the kids away. We're all about trying to make it better or being fed up because we're impatient. And, and this is not something you can clear up with gifts and flowers. This is not something that you can clear up by saying, I'm sorry. This is a devastating relationship issue. And so I just, I would suggest that you, uh, either give him or ask him to read out of the doghouse because it's basically an exercise in empathy. It's how to act, at least act like you have empathy and put your narcissism aside. And what I say in doghouse to the men, and I really mean this, is if you don't want to stay with this person, do whatever you want. You don't have to be empathic. You don't have to be kind. You don't have to. But if you want to be with this person and you want to make peace with this person, you're going to have to act differently with them. And I have to just say a lot of people just don't know how to make peace with you and or how long it might take. It's shocking to me that men I work with say, oh, you know, three, four months. I mean, and it's a year, you know, it is a year before I think there's real peace in the house. And that's provided everybody's doing their job. So, well, I mean, and, and I would say a year at least. And th this person says, and, and I do applaud you, you know, six meetings of, you know, I mean, you're doing good work. That's great. But just think about your partner, you know, got hit by a truck a year ago, you know, and you knew all along that you were lying, cheating, doing all this stuff. So it wasn't a right. newsflash for you. 
it was for your partner. That's the the challenge. And so, so like there, there's is delayed. And I, I say, you know, 12 to 24 months. I mean, it, it takes what it takes and it, there's no magic that, Oh, well they're at 18 months and they should darn well be over this. Right. Now, some partners do get stuck and need some EMDR or some things, you know, to help, you know, the somatic experience, do some work around those trauma triggers so that they aren't having the physical body reaction to it. But a lot of it, and I put the link in there, the out of the doghouse work group is starting again next week. You know, it's practical oh, right. information and peer support of like, okay, you know, I said this to my wife and you like, I thought it was a good thing. And her, and her reaction was this. And right. you know, the guys will go, yeah, you know, I mean, like you'll get, you'll get help and validation, you know, around some of that. So Tammy, I just have to ask, are we starting in a second out of the doghouse group tomorrow? Yes. Is that what no, 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 it's not tomorrow. It's next week. Um, okay. So the next sex addiction 101 starts this Saturday and then mm-hmm. out of the doghouse, uh, yeah, a, a new group, um, a level one will start next week. So yeah, I, on, so, on this website, you'll find those resources. And let me just say, if it makes any sense to you, that these go in order. You know, a book that I wrote on empathy and compassion for your spouse is not going to be useful if you're still acting out. Correct. So a lot of the men I work with will say, oh, I I read out of the doghouse and I've learned how to be empathic and nice to my wife. Well, that's nice, but you're still seeing sex workers. So, you know, the partners, and I understand, want this person to act in a certain way because they deserve it, but and they haven't gotten it. But on the other hand, if this person doesn't understand sobriety, let them read Sex Addiction 101 first or some kind of, you know, get into the process. Um, Doghouse is really about, okay, we are moving towards some peace here, and I want to really understand how to make that peace better and, and, uh, and more aligned. I will tell you it is my best-selling book because there's a lot of people cheating out there, and they have no idea how to make it better. So. Well, and interestingly, so we have a Porn Addiction 101 too, and I had somebody that reached out and said, you know, like I, I, I didn't cheat. I was looking at poor, like all of these things. I didn't have sex with a real person. So in this person's mind, it wasn't really cheating, even though it's obviously caused a lot of problems within the relationship. And so I was like, you know, if, if it's secrets and lies and you're hiding behavior from your partner, or it's not agreed upon, you know, then there's still a, you know, it's still problematic for the relationship. And anyway, so we have a point, well, but I want to say something about Tammy, yeah, please. Which is, um, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with well, I don't judge people who use porn, I worry about the people in the porn, but I don't judge someone if they want to look porn occasionally. I don't judge someone who has a drink once in a while, I even get drunk on New Year's, but I really am concerned about the people in repetitive patterns of behavior that they don't see how problematic it is. Um, and uh, I think I'm saying that in relationship to this time I'm getting old. I don't remember things. Um, I was yeah. talking about the work group. So porn addiction one-on-one and, oh, and right. so, uh, the dog. Um, house, so yeah, I, I just want to say the dog house. Uh, so we limit the workshop. These are just educational. We're not doing therapy and, but, but out of dog house is a very educational process. How do I be empathic? Um, I think that filled up in three days. And so that's why we're doing it. More. It did. And we're, and one more that's coming. So for those of you that have been doing the uh, Troy Love webinars, uh, which he's on this week, Wednesday, but he also does a betrayed partner group alternating Thursdays. And he does the men's group every Friday on attachment wounds. And there'll be a six week work group starting 
February 7th on that specific you know, topic. Eddie Caparucci will have some inner child work. So, so, so there's the basics like porn addiction 101, sex addiction 101. And then there's some components that will help support the recovery, not just abstinence, but recovery, you know, as, as you build that too. So ready for that. Hey, that group um, that Troy is doing, is that open to addicts and partners or? Who no, is this focus? one would be for just addicts because they, okay. they, they need, they need the help and figuring those right. things out. Not that partners don't know we may do that, you know, but we have our plates kind of full. So we're going to, that will be the next one. We do have some betrayed partner um, a work group that probably March watch for that. I'll obviously talk about it too, but we'll have a six week work group to support, you know, partners as well. So <sighs> we're busy. Okay. So the next question, and this one's right up your alley. Can you please comment on the link between early childhood trauma and addiction? And how would you treat that? Um, why isn't it, and how would you treat that? Why did it become that? How did you treat that? Because you get pretty passionate <laughs> when you go trauma, 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 trauma. So, yeah. so like, so, so go please. That's why. So first of all, um, Tammy said earlier that everyone wants to know why, but the important word is how. So every time a guy comes into seeking integrity, why did this happen to me? Why do I have this problem? You know, and and the issue really is why the why is not as important is that I can know every single thing that happened to me ever, ever, if I had a complete memory for it, and it wouldn't stop me from going, going and using porn and acting out, you know, because that is a skill set and it's stopping. It's a skill set and it has to do with relationships and healing and connections. It's a process. And so um, that's more how stuff. Uh, in the beginning uh, and in treatment, we do look a little bit at the why, but only in terms of when so many people I work with say, I'm a bad person. You know, I am uh, not worth living. I am, you know, I'm, I'm unlovable. And after what I've done, and I can say to them, well, I, I don't think you were being malicious, but you sure hurt a lot of people. I wonder if you're more broken than bad. And if we can look at the past and trauma and all that and see how they got broken, then we can move from shame to guilt. We can move from I'm awful to I did awful things. And without that, it's very hard to gain motivation because if you're terrible, you're just terrible. Not much I can do about that. So um, just to say that piece. So I think it's a, actually a fairly simple explanation, which is if you didn't get what you needed in early life with people. So it, there are people who raise us, right? And Lord knows they do their best. And I absolutely believe that I actually believe that my caregivers and parents did the best they could, it, but it wasn't what I needed. And that sort of takes us out of the parent bashing because I don't blame them. I don't hate them, I, but they sure weren't able to meet my needs. And so when someone grows up with that lack of trust that these people will meet my needs and, and I mean, needs for comfort, needs for support, needs for soothing, you know, when I can't rely on that or there's a lot of abuse in the home, and I know better than even to ask, I learn from that. And what I learn is it's not safe to reach out to other people to get help. Number one, I'm going to hurt because they're not going to help me. And number two, it must be my fault that they're not responding to me and helping me because little kids don't look at mom and say, well, mom has an eating problem and dad's having affairs. Little kids look up and say, what's wrong with me? That I'm not getting the consistency and love that I need. So when you take that message into adult life, what it really means is I'm not going to ask anyone for anything. And when I'm emotionally challenged, I'm going to go off in my little corner and make myself feel better. In other words, we're anti-relational. 
we don't healthy people turn to loved ones friends the church their community when they are hurting and from that they don't get fixed but they get comfort from that addicts don't get comfort from relationships with other people in fact we don't have much comfort at all but we do get distracted from our discomfort since we don't reach to people we reach to stuff and what i tell the guys in treatment is you know what you don't realize is you're on the floor trying to pull crumbs out of the carpet when there's a banquet behind you and the banquet is your family and your friends and the people who love you but i don't trust that i don't trust that as an addict but what i do trust is these little crumbs i see on the floor and if i keep picking at them maybe i'll get my so you know, I think that it is a learned experience of not, not trusting or believing you can rely on your caregivers that teaches you that people are really not safe and they're going to let me down. And so when adult, and you learn this at the earliest stages, like before six, and which is part of the problem because people don't remember what happened to them at that age. They just see the outcome of it in their adult lives. Every person I work with who has an intimacy disorder, which is what sex addiction is, um, had trauma, and it had to do with relationship trauma. You know, my mother was mentally ill. I was her caregiver. You know, I took care of her. And that, by the way, I learned a lot of grandiosity and narcissism around that, which is I'm the adult. You know, I get to you know be in charge of mom. And so we're screwed up on a, on a whole bunch of levels. And I'll say one more thing. There's a reason why addiction is a chronic issue that you have to deal with throughout your life. Because when I was in the formulating experiences of literally how my brain evolved, I learned not to trust people and to do it on my own. And that part of my brain is sealed over. You know, I'm not going to be six again. I'm not going to be five again. I'm not going to be three. And I'm not going to get those needs met ever. And my, def I mean, when as a child. So um, my default belief is they're not going to get met. Um, and then I don't even try. By the way, that is one of the advantages of 12-step program therapy is we're sort of forced to try. You know, I'm forced, well, I'm forced, but I raise my hand in a 12-step meeting and I say, I'm really struggling with this and I really need help with that. In my home, people have said, fix it yourself, or let me tell you about my day. Um, and you only raise your hand in a meeting and someone comes over and says, do you want to have a cup of coffee? That must be really, and it doesn't rewire our brain because it's already set. And that's why addiction is a chronic illness because it's such an early damage really. But I can learn as an adult in thought-based ways. Well, if I do that, it'll be that and it won't be as difficult. And the more meetings I go to, the more I learn for help, ask for help. The more therapy I have, the more I believe as an adult that people will be there for me. And it makes it a lot easier to turn to people for healing and support rather than trying to fix it on my own. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.